0: You will get these, and uh, now in Revelation chapter 1, we begin at verse number 9, and we're considering uh, what the book entitles itself to be the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, we are seeing a different picture of Jesus in this last and final chapter of the Bible than you have seen heretofore, and sometimes men forget that there is another side of God. We often hear a lot about the love of God, and indeed He is a God of love. We hear a lot about the mercy of God and the grace of God, and all of those marvelous things are true. But I'll tell you there is another side that reveals a a wrathful, a God of judgment, a God of fiery indignation. And so we're looking tonight at this passage in Revelation 1 and in verse number 9, visions of victory. And John says, and I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the, big, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, or lampstands. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps, or the breast, with a golden girdle. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write these things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels, or the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks, are lampstands, which thou sawest, are the seven churches." I'd ask you again to make special note of verse number 19 where you will find the divine outline of this book of Revelation where John says, or the Lord says to him, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, past, present, and future. A divine outline of the book of the Revelation. Now, in these verses, uh, I want to give you four words that will divide in outline form, uh, 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 alliterated form, uh, if you please, these verses that we're considering tonight. And I want to suggest that if you are not in the habit of using a pen and a pad, I urge you to do that. Again, let me say what I've said before. It's hard for me to remember uh, even things that I write down, much less things that I just hear uh, so let me urge you to do it, lest the devil come and steal the seed of the word of God away from you. Now, th- four things that are very important and are points of emphasis in these verses. And they're simple of these. First, we find a victim, a victim. And that is verse 9 through verse number 10a, which is the first part of verse number 10. The second thing you find is a voice. A voice, verse number 10b through verse 11. A voice, verse 10b through 11. And then in verse 12 through 16, a vision. A vision that John has been given of our Lord. Verse 17 and 18, there is the revelation of a victory. So we have these four simple words a victim, a voice, a vision, a victory. And I think it will help us to keep in mind uh, the thoughts of the verses. I think also you'll find in these verses that here is revealed something of a characteristic of the present age in which you and I find ourselves. And that is words of admonition as to what we should be doing while we're waiting for the Lord's return. Remember Jesus said on another occasion to his disciples, occupy until I come. So there is something to do while we are in this period of the age of the church, the age of grace, prior to the return of Christ and the clouds for his own. And so let me give those to you for your further consideration. Verse 9 reveals a characteristic that ought to be evident in all of our lives, and that is individual witnessing. Individual witnessing, the testifying of God's grace and power. Individual witnessing. And uh, I think it's interesting here in verse 9, as John says, I, John, who also am a brother and companion, was on the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I couldn't help but when I read that again this afternoon, I asked myself this question. I wonder if it were illegal for us to witness today to give testimony to those who know not Jesus Christ. I wonder if we would be witnessing and testifying enough to even be deserving of being exiled or imprisoned because we've been faithful in our witnessing. I fear the truth is about most of us, uh, we wouldn't have to fear prison. We wouldn't have to fear banishment by some uh, hostile and atheistic government. Uh, because our witnessing is so nil, and oftentimes, if not nil, it is so very weak. And then you'll find at verse 10 through 18, John seems to reveal here that another characteristic of our lives in this period of the church is that of instinctive worshipping. Worshipping our Lord Jesus. Witnessing, yes, but worshipping as well. And I don't mean by worshiping, just going to church. Worshiping the Lord ought to be a daily affair in our lives. Personally, family-wise, community-wise, church-wise, we ought to be worshiping God and praising Him for who He is. And then verse 19 and 20, I think John suggests here an intelligent waiting, an intelligent waiting. And you'll find that he's talking about the seven churches, the things which shall be hereafter, the things that are. In other words, he reminds us of a time, of time, past, present, and future. And he seems to be saying this, that in this, in this period of time, while events are unfolding, And as they unfold in God's time, according to God's schedule, we ought to have an intelligent attitude of waiting for our Lord from heaven, ever watching for his return, alert to the fact that his coming is imminent, which simply again means that he could come at any moment. And so uh, these things, I think, will help us in our understanding. Well, let's look back at verse 9 and consider what I've named the victim. John has been exiled to a little island out in the Mediterranean Sea, a small island about 15 miles as far as length is concerned, and is a very rocky island. Undoubtedly, there were caves there, and John was exiled by the emperor of Rome by name of Domitian. Domitian uh, exiled John and thought perhaps if we can get him away from the mainland and out there by himself, then we'll just, we'll just nip this thing of that kind of preaching and talking about Jesus and uh, telling folks they need to be saved. We'll just be rid of that. But you see, uh, the more the devil in the world tries to suppress the gospel, strangely enough, the stronger it comes out. And so John now is cast out on the Isle of Patmos as a common criminal. One who is offensive to the state and to their state-run religion. So John here is a victim, as it were, of the Roman government, but not so for the child of God. Paul reminds in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? In other words, it may seem to have been a bad lot for John, but it was all in the plan of God. For there on that troubled little island, in those bad adverse circumstances, God had placed his servant so that he might reveal himself and the truth that others of us would need to know. And so you see, it is in the times of trouble that God prepares us to touch the lives of other people. To be a blessing, a strength, an encouragement even unto those about us. So John is on the Isle of Patmos and he says definitely it is because, not that he stole money out of the treasure. Uh, he didn't misappropriate funds. Uh, He wasn't convicted of fraud, uh, uh, of male fraud, because of some uh, uh, misrepresentation like some uh, preachers today. And we got preachers in prison. We got them in jail. You know it as well as I do. But I'm afraid they're not there because of the witness of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And yet John, that's his reason there. Only reason Paul wound up in prison was he preached the gospel. He told men and women the truth. And the world just can't stand that. Well, here's the victim it seems. John on the Isle of Patmos. But look at verse 10. While John is there, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a, of a trumpet. Now, oddly enough, I think, it, uh, I think I'll think remind you of this. John wasn't sitting nowhere there on the island of Patmos uh, feeling sorry for himself. Uh, he uh, thought now, instead of me feeling sorry for myself and, and uh, feeling full of self-pity because I've been misunderstood and all I've been doing is trying to help people out to hear the truth, John took an opportunity to worship. Uh, He took an opportunity to let God speak to him and to open his heart and to hear the truth from God. And indeed, that's what we ought to do when troubles come and adversities come. Keep our hearts open to God. Keep our ears attuned unto heaven. Our eyes turned in his direction. So John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, There's some disagreement among Bible scholars as to the term, the Lord's Day. Some believe that John is just simply saying, I was in the Spirit on the first day of the week. But I do not believe that's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit could have, as in other places, designated that if it had been that way, to just by simply saying, I was in the Spirit on the first day of the week. But he chooses a term that is very familiar to the Old Testament reader, and that is the day of the Lord. It is referred to in the Old Testament as a day of vengeance, a day of judgment, a day of wrath, a day of fierceness. And so I believe what John is saying is this. Maybe we could use a modern term. He has an out-of-the-body experience. You remember what happened to Paul on that occasion when they left him there half dead and Paul himself said, I don't know whether I was in the body or out of it. Paul's talking about an out-of-the-body experience. And he said, I don't know where I was. I don't know what condition. But he said, I do know this. I was caught up into the third heaven. And there I heard things and saw things that are not even lawful for me to repeat and to reveal to you. So what I believe John is saying is this. The Lord transported me by his spirit to that great and terrible day of the Lord. You see, God's day is coming. This is man's day. A day when man tries to abase and dethrone God and kick God out of his own universe It is man's day while he lives his own selfish life and sinful life, disobedient to God, ignoring the word of God. This is man's day. But I want to tell you, sir, your day is coming to a close. You can ignore God, you can flaunt God, you can thumb your nose at God, but I want to tell you, your days are numbered. There is a day on God's calendar when God will deal with men on this earth and will settle accounts with men and women and young people on this earth. Oh, you just thought you got by with your sin. You just thought you hid it from God. The whole story is there's coming the Lord's day. And what a day that day is going to be. And so this is man's day. But God's day is coming when God shall abase all man and his rebellion against him. And God shall be exalted as the scripture has definitely revealed to us he will be. So John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. But I want you to watch this. And here's the voice. The victim hears the voice and he said and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now the trumpet was used in the Old Testament to summon men to battle. You're going to find descriptions of war and battle and bloodshed and judgment in this book of Revelation. But what you're beginning to see now is that opening vision of a different side of our lovely Lord Jesus Christ. He thus is beginning to open now his very heart of judgment. And that's what John is saying. I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And when you hear the sound of a trumpet, I'll guarantee it'll get your attention. If someone were to blow one back there, we might have a resurrection in here. But anyway, uh, you know, and that might be a good idea. Has anybody got a trumpet around here? Uh, one of my deacons. Maybe ought to blow that every once in a while. About five or ten minutes into every sermon, and uh, maybe that uh, we had turned to see what's going on. I'm just seeing you. But anyway, he said, "I heard a voice as of a trumpet behind me." Now watch, saying, "I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last." We have heard this before. The beginning of the end, he said back in verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. I started it, God said, I'll finish it. That's what he's saying to John. Alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega the last. And he said, I started this and I'll finish it. Again, you'll remember concerning our faith in the Hebrew letter. The scripture says, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. God is the beginning, the end, and he's everything in between. So you're he's Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book. I want to tell you the value of writing. Aren't you glad John, the Lord said, John, write it down. No telling what we'd be hearing today if the Lord hadn't said write it. I want to give another plug for taking notes. That's a good one right there. Write it down, he said. If you don't, You're going to miss it. And so John hears the Lord say, write it in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia and he names those distinct churches that are chosen sovereignly of God. And I'll say a little bit more about that when we come in chapter 2 and 3 to the churches. There is a prophetic reason There is a present reason, there is a personal reason or application. All three of those areas, a prophetic application, a present application, as well as a personal application in the letter that our Lord writes through John to the churches. Now then, look at verse 12, if you will. And here John, after turning to see the voice... He hears a voice behind him. He turns to see what it is. And now at verse 12, he sees the vision. And I turned, notice this, to see the voice. To see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Here's a thought. The Bible said in its own interpretation that these seven golden lampstands are pictures of the church. And isn't it interesting that when John heard the voice of our Lord When he turned around, he did not immediately see the Lord. you know who he saw? He saw the church. He saw the church. And even so, as the voice of our Lord goes out through the ministry and the message and the sound of this church, men and women turn and they may not see the Lord Jesus immediately as John did not see him immediately. But their first vision is that of the church. So you see, Christian, you and I stand on the front line. You and I are out on the window, the display window. And when the world walks by, the only Christ that they're going to see is in your life and in mine. They're going to see the Christ in this church. And if we do not manifest and reflect the likeness of Christ, men and women are going to pass us by and never get an understanding or a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. If your children would see Christ, they must see him in your life as a mother and father. If your wife would see Christ, she must see him in your life as a husband. If your husband is to see Christ in that family life, he's going to have to see it in in you as his wife. In other words, that reflection of Jesus. And so when John turns after hearing the voice, he turns and sees the seven golden candlesticks. Do you remember when you got on a conviction? The Lord began to talk to you about your lost condition. Now, certainly your thought was on the Lord, but I guarantee you, you thought about the church, God's representative. You thought about the missionary, the preacher, the evangelist, that Christian witness over there, and you went to them that they might share with you the very message of our Lord Jesus. So he turned, sees the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst, he said, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed the garment, down to the foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So he finds the Lord Jesus in his rightful place in the church, the center of the church. And our church at Return Baptist can never be what it ought to be if Christ is not always the center. The preacher ought not to be at the center, the deacon, Sunday school teacher, choir musician, choir leader, but Jesus He alone can keep things moving. He alone can accomplish for his glory through us what he desires to to accomplish as we give him that central location and place and position of priority in our lives. And the application is well applied to our lives personally. The Lord Jesus must be first. He must have the right for priority. I talked to a precious gentleman last night for a long while and he said, Preacher, the thing that God's talked to me about in my life is the fact that God has not had the priority in my life. Everything else has taken precedence over him. He hasn't been at the center of my life and as a result, the weather and the sea of my life has become turbulent and and, and dangerous and restless. Jesus wants to be first and he deserves to be first. And so he's found in the very midst of the church. Now, here you'll find, beginning at verse 13, a vision. The vision that John sees of our Lord Jesus, and what a vision it is. Notice these things. It's a ninefold description of the Lord Jesus. Notice at verse 13. And I saw one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the foot. First of all, I think as John looks upon him, He shares with us the fact that He is the unknowable one. The unknowable one. I don't mean by that you can't know Him as Savior. But oh how little we really know of Him. We have a little bit of knowledge of Him about a smidging, I guess. Or some of you ladies say when you're cooking a pinch. We do not really fully know Him. And yet, no wonder this book that we're looking at tonight No wonder it is called the book of the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Here he is clothed from the shoulders all the way down, notice, to the feet. His form is literally hidden from the eyes of men. Now when you look at him in the gospels, you see him in the light of humility. He was there in his humiliation. He had come down to this earth. But you will see as he begins to unveil himself and take away, as it were, this garment that covers him from shoulders to feet. You'll begin to see a different view of the Lord Jesus. In the Gospels, you see him as the gentle lamb. As you see him in the revelation, you see him as the roaring lion. He is referred to in the scripture, by the way, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here the lion aspect and character of our Lord Jesus is seen. yes, we sing about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, smile upon this little child and thank God in this age of grace, our Lord does manifest that trait of the lamb as he came to this world to sacrifice himself, to give himself, to go in humility on this earth, to be rejected of men, smitten of men, afflicted and rejected and despised, yes. He came as the lamb, but here, as the veil is taken away, you begin to see the lion' side of our Lord Jesus. The last this world saw him was the scene of him hanging on a cross in ugly, open, shameful nakedness. And yet in that shameful moment, it seemed that God swooped down from heaven and clothed and covered him. In the midnight darkness of a cloud. To hide him as it were. From the face of those who derided. And opposed and rejected him. But now when John looks at him. You know what he sees? He doesn't see the lamb in humiliation. He sees the Lord Jesus. In all of his glory. He sees him in the fullness of that glory. And the revelation of the person. That our dear Lord is. It all goes again to remind. Of how little we do know and how little we can know about the majesty of our God. Paul cried out in the Philippian letter and said that I may know him. All he knew him as Savior as you and I do. But Paul said there's so much about him that I cannot grasp. I cannot know, and yet I think John is revealing here and reminds us this. We can never fully get all of understanding of our great and wonderful Savior. Verse 13 continues. And here he is seen not only as the unknowable one, but he is seen as the unemotional one. The unemotional one. Look at the statement, this fallen statement. He was girt about the, the breast with a golden girdle. In other words, all of his emotions were rigidly restrained. Let me say it again. All of his emotions, suggestively by this picture John gives, a golden girdle about him, all of his emotions rigidly restrained. It is not that our Lord Jesus cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. It's not that at all. But our Lord, in this instance, comes as judge. He comes as the executor of men and their wickedness. When on this earth, our Lord was touched with that emotion. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept as he looked over uh, 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 degrading Jerusalem. He wept in the garden of Gethsemane. He wept indeed with individuals. He wept with the nation of Israel. He wept over the races of all of mankind where they're found on this very globe. But now he is about to enter into judgment with the world. And as a judge, he must not be swayed by pity or by passion. A judge on the courts of our land must indeed practice that. However, sometimes the judge on the bench in the courts of our land may be swayed by his feelings for others, his passion, or even his pity upon someone in a sad, sad condition. And you see it's for this very same reason, a similar reason, that justice, you've seen that statue of justice, she's blindfolded. She's carved out of the hard stone. In one hand she holds a balancing scale, and in the other a drawn sword which is simply saying that justice cannot be swayed by pity, by passion, by emotion, nor by uh, neither can justice be impartial or, or partial. It cannot be anything but impervious to all the truth if judgment is to be fair and right and true. So Jesus is seen here now as the judge. I think of the story you may have heard many times. A young man was out on a sunny afternoon and he was swimming in the river. The currents caught him and the young man was drowning. He could not save himself and began to cry for help. A man was driving along and he saw and stopped and heard this young fellow crying. he got out of his automobile, ran to the edge of the river and there he saw the young man drowning. And the fellow jumped into the river and swam to his rescue and rescued the boy, saved his life, brought him to the shore. Days and weeks passed and finally one day the young man was arrested for some uh, illegal behavior. He was brought into the court and then arraigned before the judge. And as he stood there looking at the judge, he seemed to recognize the face of that judge. And then he said to the judge after the judge had passed sentence on him that was severe and strong. And the little young man looked at the judge and said, but sir, don't you know me? Don't you know why he said the other day I was out there swimming of the river and I was drowning. And sir, it was you who jumped in the river and swam to my rescue, came to my aid and rescued me. And the judge said, yes, son, indeed I was your savior yesterday. But today I am your judge. Now, folks, listen to me today. He will be your savior. He throws out the rescue line. He reaches out his hand, but there's coming a day when he shall no longer be Savior. But there's coming a day when indeed he will be judge. So here is the one who is unemotional as he stands as the judge of all the earth. You will at verse 14. He is seen in this statement of John as the unimpeachable one. The unimpeachable one, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. In this judge there can be found no corruption. There can no, never be found where he now yields to some bribe that someone offers in the, in, the, uh, in the form of some monetary gain or some personal favor. But the judge who is there indeed is unimpeachable. You know, they, uh, they may impeach a president. They may impeach somebody in high office in this country because of moral laxity and corruption. But I want to tell you, this judge will never ever be impeached from that bench and that throne of judgment. For the Bible says of him, he knew no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Sin and corruption had no attraction to it. They tell in ancient history, then when the ancient sailors used to sail out to the unknown, they had a great fear of what was known as a lodestone mountain somewhere out there in the seas. And that lodestone mountain had great powers about it whereby as the ships would sail on the surface of the water, if they came within the range of that lodestone mountain, that, that power, that magnetic power could literally, even against all the wind and the efforts of the se- seamen, that lodestone mag- power could draw them into the shore and crash them and destroy them. They had a terrible fear of that. And somehow sin is like that legendary lodestone mountain to us. We're attracted to it. We're pulled by it. And oh, how many lives are wrecked and ruined on the shores of life because they're attracted by sin. Like a miller is, a, is attracted to the light of a candle. And yet when it swoops into the flame, it is destroyed. But our Lord had no attraction with sin. Sin was not an attraction. Yes, he was in the flesh, but he was God. The devil tried often to attract him and pull him aside uh, apart from the will and the purpose and the plan and the commands of God, but our Lord had nothing in Satan. Remember what John said as he recorded his words? In John 14 and verse 30, Jesus said, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. What he's simply saying is, whatever the devil throws, there's no attraction. There's no pull as far as the Son of God. So therefore, I say to you, he is the unimpeachable one. Never a flaw, never one thought crossed his mind to violate the will of God and the word of God. He is the unimpeachable one, the purest of the pure men will face in that awful time of judgment. Not only that, but verse 14 tells us something else. It says, his eyes were as a flame of fire. I see in that description of our Lord Jesus, the undeceivable one. The undeceivable one. Look up here in a minute. We think sometimes we deceive people, and we do. But I want to tell you something. God reads you and me like an open book. And you see, it's not people before whom we shall stand. You're not going to have to answer to your mother and dad you're going to have to answer to God. You're not going to have to answer to your wife or your husband. You're going to have to answer to God. Certainly we have responsibility in those areas. But what I'm talking about is judgment. Judgment. And when we stand before him, we're going to stand before the one who is not deceived by the fair smile and by the good words and the religious nature. God sees, and that's what he's saying. Fire burns and bores its way into the hardest heart of the toughest timber and actually can melt the strongest steel. And John said, his eyes were a flame of fire. The ancients knew no hiding place and no place of refuge nor safety against that searching power of flame and the fire. And yet when men, right here in this verse, men are before his eyes. They see those, those eyes burning as flames of fire. And yet I think of him when he is on this earth. His eyes showed no flaming fire. They were eyes that were kind and gentle, compassionate. I think of Simon Peter who denied our blessed Lord. And there as he stood outside, warming himself with the fire of those who made fun. And those who had rejected Christ. And Simon Peter stood there, denied the Lord Jesus three times. Saying, I don't know him. He cursed. He swore. I don't even know him. And the Bible says in John or Luke chapter 22, verse 61 and 62. Listen to this. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter went out. And wept bitterly. He saw in the gentle, kind, searching eyes of a loving lamb. Something that brought tears to his heart. But I'll tell you what these eyes of fire will do. They will bring terror. They will bring horror. They will bring trembling to the soul of any man. I don't care who. When those eyes look upon us, they are looking now as eyes that are turned to judgment. Do you ever hear anybody say about a person when they're angry? He had fire in his eyes. I used to see that in mama's eyes every once in a while. She had fire in her eyes. Boy, I knew she meant business. And yet Jesus is seen here by John as seeing those eyes. John sees his very eyes burning like fire as he sweeps in one fleeting glance. The whole globe, the whole world, the whole race of mankind, he sees him. He sees us tonight. Thank God he looks in mercy. He sees us in grace. But I tell you, if we spurn his love and grace and flaunt his word, one day you will not see eyes of compassion, but eyes that burn as fire, eyes that speak of judgment. Look at verse 15. And you'll find him here in verse 15 as the undeterrible one. One who cannot be deterred. Verse fifteen: His feet were like like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. In a furnace that is a fire. In other words, John is saying here, nothing, nothing can stand in his way. It seems to me that he pictures here a scene of a terrible, strong, and mighty army. That literally goes across the land. Crushing every resistance. Flushing out every enemy. There is no holding back. There is no deterring of this one who moves now on the world in judgment. Yes, men may resist him in his offer of grace. In his pleading of love and compassion. But Listen folks, there will never be a man able to deter and stand when he comes with those feet of fire and burning. None will be able. To stand before him in that day. I look at verse 15 again and I see him as the unanswerable one. The unanswerable one. And the verse says, his voice was as the sound of many waters. You ever stood at the base of a falls? Perhaps you have had the opportunity to see Niagara Falls. When you stand there, can you imagine somebody standing down at the foot of Niagara and arguing with Niagara Falls. Can you imagine a fellow down there with all the roar of those of, of, of twelve million cubic feet of water that comes down every minute? Can you imagine a puny man standing there and arguing with that and trying to have his way and trying to persuade the water to cease falling? I want to tell you his voice is an unanswerable voice. How are you going to answer God? How are you going to answer When he asks you the question, what have you done with Jesus? I guess one of the greatest mysteries of God in this present age is the silence of God. We see men and women going on in their sinful way, their God-despising way, their sin-loving way. And it seems that God does nothing and men assume that God is just simply indifferent. But I want to tell you, God's silence is not a silence of indifference. It's a silence of mercy It is the silence of grace. It is the humble sound of the bleating lamb. That's his voice now. But John said, I heard a different sound. His voice sounded like the rumble and the roar of many waters. One day, he will keep silence no longer. Somehow you think you've gotten away with your sin, but one day his voice will be heard resounding around this universe and men trembling because of the terrible sound of his voice. What a pleasant voice it is now when you hear him inviting men to come. You hear him saying to his disciples, Peace be still. You hear him saying in his own loving voice to John, Fear not, John, but all to the Christ rejecter and the man or woman who ignores God's truth. His voice one day will be heard to roar. Hosea described his voice in Hosea 11 verse 10. And Hosea said, He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children of the west shall tremble. They shall tremble as a bird, as a dove out of the land of Assyria. And I hear him in Joel, Joel's uh, prophecy, chapter 3 verse 15 and 16. And Joel spoke of those last days when judgment would come. And he said, the sun and the moon shall be darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord shall roar out of Zion. And one day all the voices raised in angry protest against him will be heard no more. When his voice is heard as the sound of many waters. You may not hear him today as he talks to you and calls you. You'd better. For one day you're going to hear him. But when you hear that voice of the sound of many waters, it'll be too late to change, to turn, to repent, to confess. Now's the time in this age of grace. And then in the eighth place, I want you to look at this. The seventh, you'll find that he is, in verse 16... An unparalleled one. The unparalleled one. Verse 16 reads, He had in his right hand seven stars. He had in his right hand seven stars. The symbolism of this very description John gives here suggests one who is in complete control over all the forces, known and unknown, the forces that are seen and that are unseen, the natural, the supernatural that shape the destinies of men. You know, we have a group of people in America today who feel like the stars determine their destiny. What a bunch of junk. I want to tell you, it's not the stars that shape your destiny. Whether you was born under, well, I don't know what they call those things, vigoro or something, I don't know, fertilizer of some kind. I don't know what star you may have been born under, but I want to tell you something it won't make any difference. The thing that will shape your life is not the stars, but the creator of the stars. He is the one who shapes history. He is the one who puts up and puts down. He is the one who calls the course of the river of life and the river of time and the river of history. And yet he holds those forces in his, notice, in his right hand. And that right hand of the scripture is always symbolic of the hand of power, the hand of strength. The things, somebody said it like this, the things which overtake us are not overlooked by him. They are just overruled by him. The things that are overtaken, that overtake us in life, are not overlooked by him. They're just overruled by him, not the stars, but by the one who made them. He is an unparalleled one. He holds this universe in his hand. He holds our destinies in his hand, unparalleled. Look at verse 16 again, and you'll find in eighth place, the unconquerable one, the unconquerable Christ. And the verse says, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And we learn from Hebrews 4 and verse number 12 and other passages that sword is indeed a, a, a symbol of the word of God. Hebrews four twelve. The word of God is quick and powerful, as a sharp two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing, asunder of soul and spirit, to the joints and marrow of the bones. So, it's God's word, the unconquerable word of God. In Genesis chapter one, by the way, ten times in chapter one, you'll find the statement, "And God said," and God said, and when God spoke. When God's word was uttered, worlds literally sprang into place. Darkness fled. The earth arose and flung back the very waters of the sea. Life in countless multitudes of forms began to come alive and spring up in this very earth. And at his very words, while our Lord was upon this earth, even demons and death and disease fled. His word is an unconquerable word. Hallelujah. I'm glad I have a anchor cast in the unconquerable word of God. Well, you say it doesn't seem like truth and rights winning out today. You're right. But God's day is coming. Men have shunned him, spurned him, ignored him. But his day is coming. God said I said it and I'll bring it to pass. You don't have to lose one week of sleep, worry one moment. God indeed when he says something you can bank on it. Not only that but one final statement in verse 16. And he says his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. What a description of the unapproachable one. The unapproachable one, Saul of Tarsus, saw that brightness. When on the road to Damascus, he was blinded by that light that came from God himself. And he was blinded they had to lead him around. Paul, or Saul of Tarsus then, saw that light. An unapproachable light. And yet while on earth, our Lord Jesus was the most approachable of all men. Little children were fear, had no fear. To come to him. Zacchaeus the publican had no fear to come to him. Nicodemus the statesman came to him. Simon the leper, the lost, unclean woman of the street came to Jesus. All men found him approachable. But watch, no longer. John said, As I was lifted by the Spirit and transported into that day of the Lord, I saw him unapproachable. His his countenance was as the very light of the sun as it shines in its strength. Scientists tell us that the sun puts out 4,200,000 tons of radiated heat per second. Can you imagine approaching such strength and power and fire as that? And yet John said, I saw him, the unapproachable one, well, our spacecrafts and whatever they've got up there, if they're pulled down by the ground of the sun, they're immediately destroyed. even before they get there. They're burned or crisp. And your John is saying, no longer, no longer will he be approachable. Now you can come to him confessing your sin, squaring things up with God, but when he stands as judge, when he comes that second time and every eye shall see him, he will be the unapproachable one. No wonder he'll say further in this revelation. And when he appeared, men cried for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne. Have you ever felt guilty of some wrong? You knew you were guilty and you just saw a person whom you know to be a devoted, surrendered child of God, you felt uncomfortable in their presence. I know, as a boy growing up, oftentimes I was, got into things I shouldn't have been in. And my godly mother, when I could listen, I'd just rather be anywhere around her. When that when that happened, she never had to say a word. I felt so low that I'd have to reach up as to say to touch bottom. I knew I was wrong. But I want to tell you, my friend, if you wait until you stand before God in this day when he is unveiled as the judge, there's no hope. You see, when he stands in judgment, there is no altar of mercy at that judgment's place. It's where sentence is meted out. There's no mercy, no pardon. But now, I'm glad I can tell you Jesus says, come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. But someday those arms that now are outstretched are going to be closed with clenched fist and judgment will come. I tell you this incident in the life of Dr. L.R. Scarborough, one of the great Baptist preachers of years ago. He said one evening a knock came to my study door. He said, a woman stepped into the door, as I said, come in. She sat down, very disturbed and broken emotionally. And he said to her, dear lady, what seems to be the problem? And she began to tell him about the years of her marriage and how she had loved this young man whom she'd married years ago. But then how he turned to abuse, physical abuse, mistreatment. And she said, now, preacher, she said, I loved him once. But she said, through all of the abuse and the terrible life, the beatings, nothing she said and he said, her eyes flashed with fire, nothing would please me more than to take a jagged butcher knife and carve his heart out of his breast. Now, I'll tell you something, folks. You can walk on God's love so long. You can trample his mercy under your feet so long. You can snob God so long. But you're dealing with a God that the scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. A vision of Christ. But victory, John talks about. And he's saying it'll soon come. But now he's saying the, we're in that age of the church. And soon as that age is over, our Lord shall come and take us home to be with himself and then shall set in a severe judgment of a holy God. Let's bow our heads to pray. I want you to stand with me, please. We're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we tremble as we think. Of that moment when men shall stand before a God whose love has turned to judgment. Oh God, I pray that you'll put a holy fear in all of our hearts. For indeed, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Somehow we've gotten a conception that you're some kind of doting old grandfather that winks at our misbehavior. But God, we read in thy word that you're a holy God. You love sinners, but you hate sin. And I pray that you'll awaken us tonight. There are believers, professed Christians in this house who tamper with sin, whose lives are in disarray. Lord, there are some here tonight who knowingly violate your will. There are some whose relationships are not right with others. There are no doubt some children here tonight whose relationship with mother and dad causes the wrath of God to stir. Lord, we do not believe any young man or young woman can be what they ought to be as a professed Christian and not be right with mother and dad. The respect we show for mother and dad reveals our respect for God. There's some here tonight, Lord, who would seek to deceive you. With good words and kind religious tones, they speak of Christ. But with the same breath, they drag your holy name in in the dirt. They Profane their name, they dirty their mouths by ugly profanity. God help us to know that one of these days we're going to meet you. Whether we're ready or not, the day's set. And I do ask that you'll somehow in your love and tender grace draw men and women to the place of genuine repentance, confession of sin, of trusting Christ as Savior. And then, Father, there may be some of you tonight you talk to about coming to the fellowship of our church by promise of letter, by statement. Maybe some are saved and never been baptized. They need to come and do that. Help us to be obedient and help us to realize that our days are short in which to do right and to hear and listen and obey your voice. Do that that needs to be done, Jesus. And I thank you for Christ's sake. Heads are bowed. Let's sing.